0: You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Great. Thanks, Dave. That's a a long reading with um, some difficult names to read in there, wasn't it? I'm, uh, as Nate said, my name's Dave. I'm part of the leadership team here at the church. And so I want to talk to you about chapter 13, some of the things that Dave read, and I'll also give you a bit of summary of some of the other bits that we didn't get to there in chapter 13. But I want to start by um, just reading you these two stories. Um, These are stories of a couple of pillars of our faith. Um, So I'll read you this story. This is about Moses. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you'll be gathered to your people. So Moses said to the people, arm some of your men and go to war against the Midianites, so that they may carry out the Lord's vengeance on them. Send into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. So 12,000 men armed for battle, a thousand from each tribe, were supplied from the clans of Israel. Moses sent them into battle, a thousand from each tribe, along with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, who took with him articles from the sanctuary and the trumpets of signaling. They fought against Midian, as the Lord had commanded Moses, and killed every man. Among their victims were Evi, Recham, Zer, Hur, Reba, and the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. The Israelites captured the Midianite women and children, took all the Midianite herd, flocks, and goods, and plunder, and then when you skip on, they get back, and Moses says... Moses was very angry with the officers of the army who returned from the battle. Have you allowed all the women to live? He asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man, but save yourself every girl who's never slept with a man. So that's a lovely story, isn't it? One of the pillars of our faith. Now, let me read you another one. Here's another great leader of our faith, Joshua. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned around and attacked Debir. This is after he'd attacked 10 other cities. They took the city, its king and its villages and put them to the sword. Everyone in it they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They did to Debir and its king as they'd done to Libna and its king and to Hebron. So Joshua subdued the whole region including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, the mountain slopes, together with all their king, he left no survivors. He to- totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Again, another cracking story there, isn't it? <laughs> I'm a leader of our faith. Um, I read you those two stories because we didn't read all of chapter 13 of Nehemiah, but in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, I think he begins to lose the plot slightly. I want to give you a a bit of a summary of what we've talked about the last two or three weeks and then where we got to in chapter 13. Um, You might remember that we've talked over the last two or three weeks about um, Jerusalem had been sacked by the Babylonians, it had been destroyed, people had been taken off into exile in Babylon, but not all of the Jews, plenty of Jews remained in Judah. And some were taken off to exile in Babylon. The the Bible actually tells the story as if absolutely everyone was exiled. Not quite true. There are lots of people left in Judah. Anyway, people in exile, Jerusalem destroyed. Um, Babylon was actually conquered by the Persians. Um, And then we get to the story of Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel, three people who were in exile in Persia. And they petitioned the king and said, we want to go back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah particularly wanted to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. And so we get into the story of Nehemiah. And the first 12 chapters are about Nehemiah rebuilding the walls and working with people and being a fantastic project manager and actually giving out jobs and having some vision for rebuilding the walls. And you read this story in the first 12 chapters about the highs and lows of Nehemiah going about building the task of rebuilding the walls. And then in chapter 13, the bit that Dave didn't read is that uh, Nehemiah went back to Persia, went to Susa in Persia, went back to the king, and whilst he was away, the people who were left in Jerusalem didn't follow the law in the way that Nehemiah was expecting. They, as Dave read, did work on the Sabbath, they intermarried between the different tribes of the Moabites locally. In the first 15 verses, there's a guy called Tobiah who gets to move into the temple. Actually, this is all a bit of a battle between Nehemiah, who's got his particular understanding of the way the law should be kept, and the people who stayed in um, Judah through the exile and their understanding of the way the law should be kept. And Tobiah is one of his enemies. And Tobiah's moved into the temple and he's furious about that. People have defiled the sabbath as far as nehemiah's concerned people have intermarried there's a bit in chapter 13 where he just completely loses his plot he's angry with people he drives somebody out of the house he chases somebody out of town into the desert he breaks up relationships between people who are going to marry between different tribes and at one point in the story he beats some people up and then pulls somebody's hair out because he's so furious about what people have done and I think it's a really interesting story and it's just too easy to gloss over the violence and the anger and the fury that's made. it's just another one of those Bible stories that's got a bit of light-hearted violence in it. I don't think we should do that. Um, I'm not completely trying to equate it to those stories of Moses and Joshua either, but I do think it's a difficult story for us. Um, Nehemiah gets back after having done this wonderful job as a project manager and then seems to lose the plot with people. What do we do with those stories in the Old Testament like that, where we see this violence, that doesn't, violence and anger that doesn't seem to match the character of Jesus? Nehemiah is back in Jerusalem trying to build an identity. He's trying to get people to follow the law of Moses, the law that you find in the Pentateuch. He's trying to get people to stick to the rules. What do we do with that violence, and what do we do about those laws in the Old Testament that uh, Nehemiah is trying to get people to follow? If we just go back for a moment to those stories of Moses and, and Joshua, the story of Moses, my understanding, and this is my understanding, but of those stories is we're talking about some ancient people in the time of Moses. We're talking about a story that was written about Bronze Age people. And this is a group of Israelites who are trying to understand God, and they're trying to understand how to live together as a community. They're trying to understand who God is, and then they're trying to write down rules for the way in which they live together but they are bronze age people so they bring into that their bronze age morality and they bring into that bronze age thinking and so when you're reading some of those stories you get this real mixture of the high points of people understanding the liberating loving God and then you get the real low points of people having completely missed the point point. You get the real high points in the Bible of people understanding and the low points of people having missed the point. I, I think the Bible is a fantastic book because, a fantastic series of books, it's a library, because it's just sort of all out there on the page. There's, like I say, the good stuff that happened where people understood and the terrible stuff that happened where we should learn lessons from how they got it so wrong and, and the stuff in between. It's this great history and tradition of people's lives and how they lived them. But it's sort of all out there for us to learn from. So when we're looking at these stories in the Old Testament, I, for me, there are a couple of things that I think we should do. One is we should look at what's different about those stories compared to the culture around them. And then sometimes we should look at those stories and think, how did they get it so terribly wrong? What are we getting terribly wrong? And we could learn from that story. That story. Let me just give you an example of that. Um, there's um, something called Hammer Rabbi's Code, which is, if you go to the Louvre in, Par- in Paris... There's a room which has got lots of different stones from around the sort of Near near East. And it's got this um, uh, column, which is about two or three metres high in the middle of the room, called Hammer Rabbi's Code. And it's uh, a code that was written down by the Babylonians before all the law of Moses. And you can read round it, the language on it, and it's got all the different laws they lived by. And the reason it's really interesting is because you've probably read in the Bible famous bits about in Moses' law about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a foot for a foot and a bruise for a bruise. You heard that bit right in the Bible. That isn't new language. That's actually all written around Hammurabi's code as well. So in Hammurabi's code, it also talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a bruise for a bruise. But in Hammurabi's code, this Babylonian law written before Moses, it goes on to say, but there's a bit of a hierarchy in our culture and there are masters and there are slaves. And we treat masters differently to the way we treat slaves. And it starts telling you about how to, how to meet out different punishment depending on where you fit into society's hierarchy. But when we get to the law of Moses, all of that is gone. It's just an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a bruise for a bruise. Moses is actually talking at that point about equality. He's saying it's not about this great big hierarchy of who's the master, who's the slave, we're talking about equality. And just in that moment you see a glimpse of these Bronze Age people have understood something really profound about God. They've lifted themselves out of their Bronze Age morality for a second and seen the God of liberation and equality. But still Bronze Age thinking in there. It's still retribution, it's still um, retaliation, it's still an eye for an eye. And then we get all the way on to Jesus who said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you something slightly different. So that's a good example, I think, in the Old Testament of us looking for what's actually different to the Bronze Age morality that's going on around them. The difference between Babylonian, Hammurabi's code, and what's written in the law of Moses. Sometimes, though, I think we need to look at these stories and say, they just got it really wrong. There's no point in us trying to convolute some sort of message out of that for ourselves it's just wrong they did it wrong do i really believe in that story already from moses that god said to moses slaughter everybody and by the way don't forget the women and the children wipe them out do i really believe that happened or do i believe that is moses doing what nathan just described writing god in his own image writing that violence into the mouth of god personally that's what i think is happening in that story and that isn't to write it off that doesn't mean we should say oh this is a mistake it shouldn't have been in the bible why on earth is it there let's get rid of it it's really important to us in our culture when do we write into the mouth of god the morality of 21st century world that we live in we think we're at the sort of high point of culture don't we we live in the juvenile morality don't we when do we write into the mouth of god our juvenile morality and play it out into the world around us That story from Moses is a great story. We should learn a lesson from it directly into our culture. So when we're reading these things, I think we need to look at what's different and learn from mistakes and misunderstandings that's in there. I think we've got the gross benefit that Nehemiah didn't have of being able to read all of this through the lens of Jesus. And as real shorthand, we say this all the time, don't we? But if it doesn't look like Jesus, it isn't God we get the advantage of looking backwards at Moses and saying, well, it doesn't look like Jesus, therefore it isn't God. Therefore, I can probably take that story and learn some lessons about misunderstandings in it. Jesus ultimately, if we're talking about the law and Nehemiah was trying to impose the strict law on the people of Judah, Jesus ultimately comes on to say, I am the fulfilment of the law. I'm not here to trash it, but I am here to say, live by the spirit of it, not by the letter of it. And, you know there's that great story in in the new testament of jesus actually healing somebody on the sabbath and everybody's furious with him because jesus has broken the law isn't he and jesus says what's better to do here is it better to love somebody on the sabbath or is it better to follow the law strictly is it better to love somebody on the sabbath or is it better not to do some work you tell me so jesus ultimately pitches up to say don't live by the letter of this thing live by the spirit of it I'm not here to trash it. There was spirit in that stuff that you were grappling to understand and with it. But don't live by the letter of it. Live by the spirit of it. So back to the Nehemiah story. When I look at that story and I read through it, and you should go away and read chapter 13 because it is just fascinating to see Nehemiah just slowly lose it. You know, he, like I said, argues with people. He beats people up. He breaks up relationships. He chases somebody out of a city. He scalps a person what on earth do we do with that story at the end of Nehemiah? We've read over the last 12, you know, 12 chapters in the last few weeks, this brilliant project manager, he got loads of skills, he turned up, he got quite a lot of vision, and then that happens in chapter 13. If you go on the internet, which I did as I was preparing for this, and look for sermons on chapter 13, there are hundreds of sermons out there about trying to sort of, in my opinion, make a convoluted reason for why chapter 13 is there this is about purity. Nehemiah was back saying, the people of God needed to remain a bit pure. Nehemiah was back saying, we need some boundaries to this. We're going to get watered down by the cultures around us. If we intermarry, we're going to like slowly water away our faith. If we work on the Sabbath, we're not doing what was written down strictly in the law. You can see in um, people writing sermons about this that are about purity and righteousness and being careful not to water down and then extrapolating those principles into life today and saying well we should be careful as a Christian community to be pure and righteous and not water down our faith and frankly as I read it I was thinking if we take those lessons I think we've slightly misread chapter 13 in my opinion I would put chapter 13 in the category of one of those stories that we need to read and say how did Nehemiah get this so wrong How did he be so strict and particular about the way he was doing this? How did he end up being so violent and angry in response to people not living the way he thought they should? In my opinion, I don't think we should try and sort of create some sort of message that we extract backwards to ourselves. We should say, let's learn a lesson about how did this go wrong. Jill spoke to us right at the beginning of this series and was saying... I'm going to tell you some stuff about Nehemiah being a good project manager. I'm going to tell you some stuff about Nehemiah's vision. But remember, Nehemiah didn't do the hard work of working out what his identity was, what his character was, and read chapter 13, because it's all going to go wrong, ultimately. So, it left me asking, why on earth did Nehemiah have this really strict view about keeping the law? Um, And I was thinking, you know, Nehemiah's been in exile. Nehemiah's been one of the people that was shipped off to Babylon and Persia and it made me think that in exile, under threat surrounded by a different culture, worried about a vengeful God, you know the people in exile felt like they were in exile because they didn't follow the rules in that culture, surrounded by people, under threat, feeling sad, feeling angry feeling like you needed to be careful of God, of course you were going to create a culture and an identity which puts barriers up, which is self-protecting which says we need to be different from you because if we're not, we're going to get crushed. We need to be careful of an angry God because we didn't do it right the first time, so we better do it right the second time. No wonder in exile, Ezra and Nehemiah and his mates ended up writing a pretty strict version of keeping the law. They were sort of doubling down into the law because they felt like that was the way of doing things right. I think living in exile, I wonder whether we can, by mistake, create identity that is about self-protection. It's about, I need to like, write some stuff that makes me different from you. I need to write some stuff which protects me against this threat that I perceive. I need to write and believe some stuff which makes sure that I've got some boundaries around me, some markers between my clan and your clan. I wonder if in exile, under threat, that's the type of identity that we write ourselves um, I, I wonder whether you can actually see that in sort of diaspora communities around the world. You know, um, you know, British people who are not living in Britain but living somewhere else in the world. I've sometimes seen that British people living in another country are more British than the British because they've sort of doubled down into culture because I've got to stand out here. I feel a bit under threat by the world around me. I've got to be different to you. I'd I better, like, be, you know, really push into the thing that makes me British to distinguish myself from you. I think it's not just British people. I think all oh, cultures do that living in different countries. Um, and so I wonder whether you can sort of begin to see that parallel about when you're in exile, you double down into the thing that makes you you. And it's a bit of a self-protection mechanism. That's a problem, I think, because the identity that Jesus talks to us about, I think the meta-theme of the Bible talks to us about, is having an identity which is open, which is liberating, which is loving, which is not about being self-protecting, it's about being other-centred. The identity we're supposed to have as a community is open and other-centred. I don't want to knock um, Nehemiah completely. I don't think he got it all wrong. Like I said, I think he got loads of fantastic project management skills. I think he um, had zeal. You know, he wanted to follow God. He wanted to get it right. I think he also knew that having an identity was important. You know, he saw his job as getting back to Judah and saying, how do we create an identity together? How do we live as a community together? Having identity individually and as a community is an important thing. So I don't want to knock him completely because I think he's sort of on the right track with that. But identity to what end? What's the purpose of this identity that you're trying to create, Nehemiah? As a community, why are you creating that identity? What is it you're trying to do? And I think in doubling down into the law, Nehemiah wasn't doing what some of those ancient people did in the stories of Moses sometimes. He was like digging inwards towards, if we just follow the rules, we'll be okay with God, when actually those ancient peoples were sometimes trying to grapple themselves out of their culture and say, how do we like lift our heads above the parapet and see a God who is loving and liberating, and how do we get those real glimpses of God? as opposed to digging inwards towards keeping the rules. Developing identity is not a bad thing, but to what end? Nathan Turk talked a minute ago when he was um, leading the prayers with us. It's going on in the world around us right now, isn't it? In America, you see those political identities that are born out of threat and fear, aren't they? I feel frightened of the world around me. I'm going to create this identity, and I'm going to make sure we, my tribe, do this perfectly. It's about fear and being subdued by other. I'm going to draw some boundaries around myself to make our clan like this, so that we are different to your clan. On both sides of the debate, as Brexit's happened in this country, we are going to create an identity which is born out of suspicion and fear, and we're not sure about the world around us. Therefore, we better write some boundaries around ourselves. When you see the absolutely like gross stories in Afghanistan of the Taliban, a group of people that say that if we keep the law. Really specifically, this is how it should be, and there are punishments and there are reprisals if we don't. Creating identity is not a bad thing, but to what end? What are the purpose of those identities that I've just talked about? So, starting to get onto what should we do about any, any of this. I think, like I said, creating identity and having zeal for trying to do things the way God wants us to is a great thing, and we sort of see that in Nehemiah. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we said, as a community, how do we have that zeal for creating an identity together which wasn't born out of fear but was open and was confident and wanted to learn from other people and was loving and other-centred and does what what Jesus said, which is, love God and love your neighbour as you love yourself. And by the way, when I say love your neighbour, I mean also your enemies too. Like, Just imagine if we put that zeal into creating that identity together. Um, how fantastic life would be. Also, just thinking, I think this series we've been thinking a little bit about COVID and how we rebuild and reset as a result of COVID. And I, I think there's a little bit of a sense in which perhaps we've been in exile a bit over the last 18 months, two years. Um, we've been living in the exile of seeing friends and family, of feeling sense of pain, of feeling a sense of loss, of just not being able to see people in general, and I wonder whether we've all individually, corporately created bits of identity that are born in that sense of exile, that are born in a sense of threat and fear and sadness and loss over the last eighteen months. Um, and I was, you know, I've been talking to loads of people over the last few months that I've, you know, I've said and they've said, you know, I've changed a bit in the last eighteen months. I've, I've got a few more boundaries about who I am, and I, I, you know, I've thought a little bit more about. I, not all of that is necessarily bad. But I wonder whether we need to do the analysis that Jill was talking about in week one. We might have created some identity over the last 18 months that is born out of a bit of exile. And not all of that might necessarily be helpful as we come back together and say, how do we be the people that have an identity together which is open, confident, loving, other-centered? If I've created boundaries around myself which are about self-protection, is that gonna be helpful as we recreate this identity together? I think we can perhaps learn a bit of a lesson from Nehemiah about he created his identity in exile and it went quite strict and quite boundaried. And it wasn't massively helpful, in my opinion, when he gets back to Jerusalem and starts creating the identity together of the loving God. So, I I think, to sort of summarise all of this, first of all, when we're reading Nehemiah, we've got to do it in context. I think he created his identity in exile, and I think in exile you create an identity Or you can create an identity which is about self-protection and fear. When he gets back to Jerusalem, I think they need an identity which is open, confident, loving, other-centred, and I don't think the two things fit. Secondly, I think if you're going to read that context into it, I think you need to read the story and say, how did Nehemiah get this wrong? What was the misunderstandings that he had here? How did he get to that place? And if you go back to Jill, why didn't he do the work of dealing with the act working out what he thought about an angry God, working out what he thought about the threat he'd faced of being in exile. He didn't do that work and so ended up in the wrong place in chapter 13. Then I think there are a few things for us. The sort of zealousness and the identity that Nehemiah talked about, I think are great things. How do we as a community build an identity together which isn't born out of that stuff, but is born out of love God and love your neighbour as yourself and by that I mean your enemies, that is other-centred, that is open, that is loving, Loving. that is liberating. How do we do the job that Moses sometimes did that Nehemiah didn't seem to do, in my opinion, of like lifting ourselves out of our juvenile culture and saying, how do we actually experience the loving, lib- liberating God here, rather than just put words into the mouth of God? How do we do that as a community together? And then finally, I think, for, for me, for us, I think we need to do what Jill encouraged us to do in, on, in uh, session one of this series. Like, What are the bits of identity that we've developed through the last 18 months, through the last two years, that are perhaps not helpful in that task? Like, do we need to do some reflection on the anger, the sadness, the loss we've felt over the last, last 18 months, so that we don't develop an identity that digs into strictness the way that Nehemiah did? Maybe we need to do some reflection on all of that stuff so that we can create an identity together. So I'll leave you really, and I'm going to hand back to Nathan in a moment, by saying I think we need to read this story and say there's some misunderstanding going on here. It can't be like that. It doesn't look like Jesus, therefore it isn't God. A scalping does not look like Jesus. So what do we do with that story? I think we need to learn about how to create an identity together which loves God, loves our neighbour, and loves God others the way that we love ourselves and by that you're going to include your enemies too Um, and if we put our mind to that task I think you know us as a community just imagine if our country did that put our mind to that task I think that is the identity that Jesus is calling us to